brought to you by CGTN Europe. Hello, I'm Stephen Cole. Welcome to the Agenda podcast. And at a time of year when many of us may be thinking about exercising more and losing weight, this week we're considering the trillion dollar cost of obesity to the world's health services. And let's begin by hearing from Barry Popkin. He's Professor of Nutrition at the University of North Carolina and the first man to show that obesity is a major factor in the likelihood of dying from COVID-19. If you are obese, first of all, you'll have a significantly greater likelihood of contracting COVID, but more important, you'll have more than double the likelihood of anybody else with COVID of going into a hospital, essentially 113% more likely to go in a hospital. But worse than that, you'll have almost a a 78% greater likelihood of going into an intensive care unit and 50% almost likelihood of dying. People with who are obese and catch COVID and test positive for it are really at a much greater risk of death. And And why Why is that? uh, A lot of it has to do with the fact that our immune function for the length of time that we're overweight and obese, the adipose tissue are, are active, live cells, and they become very inflamed. And that through all sorts of pathways, reduces our immune function. So with obesity or being overweight, you're carrying around a lot of tissue that are inflamed and affecting your immune response. So for example, the flu vaccine doesn't work as well if you're overweight or obese. It still provides benefit, but about a third less than if you're normal weight. So, and we know that this coronavirus has those kind of effects. And we're worried a vaccine might have might not benefit overweight and obese people as much. And we're calling out on vaccine test makers to test the vaccines, to look at how they affect overweight, obese, and older individuals, and then prepare ways that they might boost the vaccines to help those individuals. So that's the first and most important thing. Our immune functions are reduced. There are also a lot of other pathways, but the most important is this is a lung disease. Overweight and obese individuals have smaller lung capacity. They're more likely to have sleep apnea and other issues with their lungs. And that means that this disease, which attacks your lungs, really has a bigger effect because you don't have as much lung capacity for breathing. So it causes all these complications. So there's a physical effect uh, through our physiology, and then there's the biological effect through our immune system and all sorts of other functioning. So it's a double whammy from obesity. It's a bigger effect than if you just have diabetes in your, uh, because obese individuals have also many of those problems, but they have the immune function really disturbed by, the, by their obesity. It's a bit arbitrary though, isn't it, Professor? Because I am considered clinically obese because I am half a kilo over what I should weigh. But there are people who are 20 stone overweight and they are also considered obese. That's cor- that is correct. The other, there, there are two other issues about it. There can be people uh, 
of Asian, Latin American, African descent who, who can have a BMI of 25 and have the same negative metabolic conditions of an of obese individual in, in uh, UK or US or any other country with uh, non-Hispanic white Anglos. Uh, so, so the reality is that it is arbitrary it's really based on the risk factors based on white Caucasians and others from Europe and the US. And that's a very arbitrary definition. And there's a second problem with obesity, which is you can be a weightlifter, very physically active, and have a lot of muscle mass and not much fat tissue and also be categorized as obese, but not really be obese. Tell us more about your research into the nutrition transition. Okay, so my, my research over the many decades has shown a remarkable set of shifts in the pattern of eating, drinking, and moving across the world. Uh, in, in the 1900s, uh, even before World War II, we were seeing a transition in the UK, Western Europe, and the US toward more overweight individuals uh, because our technology had reduced our effort at work. We had modernized a lot of the factory jobs and other kinds of activities. And that accelerated significantly after World War II. We modernized agriculture. We increasingly modernized all manufacturing and, and heavy lifting jobs. We brought in the technology of computers and so on. At the same time, our food supply started shifting. And that shift happened earlier in the US and the UK and Western Europe than in the rest of the world. Japan was similar. And by the 1980s, we were introducing these very highly processed foods with lots of chemicals, lots of additives and smells that were very seductive and would sate us. And we started increasing those in the higher income countries. So this is what happened in the high income countries. Well, in the last 20 to 30 years, earlier in Latin America, now in Asia and, and Sub-Saharan Africa, and earlier in the Middle East, we started seeing the same transition. Activity went down and diets really shifted. And so we now have every country in the world with at least 20% overweight and obese in adults. And the adult rates of child obesity are growing. And the fastest growing obesity in the world is now coming from Asia and Africa and the Middle East and Latin America, not from the US, the UK and others. While we continue to increase weight and increase particularly our waist circumference, it's faster growing in most of these other countries. And how much are the food companies to blame for this, Professor? Because you talk about sodium, you talk about processed foods, you talk about sugar. A, a lot of additives, sugar, salt, etc., is almost deliberately put into fast food and people can become addicted to what is the constituents of their fast food. That's right. These are very palatable, both the fast food that you eat away from home, which has a lot more additives and things in them than you would imagine, as well as the packaged and processed foods that we buy or that we buy and heat up or just buy and eat. So 
That is true. And those foods are now overwhelmingly growing in low and middle income countries. And yes, the food industry is at fault for two reasons. They have the technology to reduce the sugar and fat and put in healthier grains and reduce the unhealthy saturated fat, but they're not doing it. In fact, they're fight regulation. It took a long time to get the SDIL, the, the, the tax on soft drinks and, and sugary beverages in the UK. And the government really in the UK and in the US and in other countries needs to tax all these ultra processed foods and beverages and force the industry to start to use the same technology to produce healthier food for us. Uh, so yes, the food industry is both fighting us, particularly fighting us when countries across the globe are trying to put in regulations to control the consumption of these ultra processed foods and reduce that consumption and push toward healthier foods. Uh, so the industry is not only selling these, knowing their impact on health, but they're also trying to force governments by lots of different means not to regulate these foods. So it's clear that obesity is a major public health issue, and we've heard about some of the practical reasons why it's on the increase. But what about the mental and behavioral conditions that underlie the problem? To talk more about those, I'm joined by Jane Ogden, Professor of Health Psychology at the University of Surrey. Uh, Professor, what are the causes of obesity? Is it straightforward, eating too much? Well, obesity is a highly complex problem, which is a product of a, of a whole load of different factors. So in part, there's a kind of biological predisposition, which maybe drives the way we react to food. There's an environmental factor, which provides us food out there in the world around us. And then there's also psychological factors, which to do with our childhoods and our learning and our thoughts and our beliefs and our expectations and our emotions. And all of that together creates a complex problem where people respond to the world around them in ways that makes them then eat too much, do less exercise than they actually need for their bodies and then gain weight. But it's a very much a dynamic between those different factors. You've written extensively about eating disorders and weight management. What is the key to reducing obesity? Well, we need to understand why people eat. Um, and I think people eat for kind of three basic reasons, really. One is around emotional regulation. So we use food when we're bored, when we're fed up, um, when we're wanting to manage our emotions. We use food for social interaction. So food is fundamental to you know, having dinner with somebody, to family life, to religious uh, life, to cultural life. And we use food as part of the kind of communication process. So it says who we are. It's a statement about who we are. And then on top of that, the world provides us with food so that when we're having an emotion or when we're having a social interaction or when we want to make a statement about ourselves, we then turn to that world around us. And so trying to change what people eat or trying to change the problem of obesity is a two pronged approach. You have to change how people think, but you also have to change the world around them. And what we found from the last 30 years is that actually trying to change the way people think and respond to food is increasingly difficult because it's so embedded in who we are from the moment that we're born and the way we're brought up. So people need help. And the help that they need in order to change what they eat and how, how much exercise they do is through changing the environment around us. So we need the food industry to uh, stop giving us high energy, high calorie, cheap food, which is always available to us. 
We need the government to change the structures in our world so that we can be more active, we can cycle, we can have street lighting, we can have parks, we can have facilities available to us. And then if that world around, around us changes, then people can make better choices for themselves, but they still need that help to make those choices. So it's a dynamic, it's always a dynamic between us as individuals and the world around us in our environment. What about the criticism you're an apologist for the world around us? And you should be saying to people, learn a bit more self-discipline. <laughs> well, people often call nanny state uh, and they don't like it when the world around us is, is told to change what we do. They think that we have you know, the right or the freedom to make the choices about how we behave. But we're always turning to the world around us to change what we do. We have traffic lights which stop us from crashing our cars into each other. We have signposts on roundabouts which tell us which way to go. And they are just simple signalling from our environment, from our, our world, which are, in, which are introduced through you know, government legislation, which then make us, help us make better choices. So I think blaming people as individuals for making those wrong choices really misses the point because all the way in our life anyway, the world helps us to make good choices or encourages us to make bad choices. So we have to change the world. We still have to help people who are individuals make those choices, but it's just about creating an environment where those choices are easier to make in the right direction. The World Health Organization uh, regards uh, childhood obesity as one of the most serious health challenges of the 21st century. That's what they call it. By normalizing obesity, aren't we in danger of adding to what the WHO say is a health crisis? Well, there's, there's two components, aren't there? There's people who are already overweight, people who are already living with obesity, and then there's, which is the treatment component, and then there's a prevention component. So we need to manage both of those two things, and both of those often create a kind of tension because the people who are already overweight, already living with obesity, have bodies which are associated with being unwell. So we need to manage them in a way that makes them feel good about themselves, encourages their self-esteem, isn't critical, isn't negative, um, isn't blaming, so that they can then take control and they can live well and look after themselves. At the same time, we need to look after those people who haven't become obese yet, um, and that's a prevention strategy, which is to do with the, you know, the, our future generations, and enable them to understand that living well is also good because gaining too much weight, being, se being sedentary, um, eating an unhealthy diet is not going to be good for them in the future because it will lead to health conditions. And we know clearly that there's an association between obesity and a whole range of different health conditions. But it's getting those two, those two messages out there, which is what's so difficult. So absolutely, you do not deny that obesity is associated with all sorts of health conditions, which it clearly is but you have to do that in ways which doesn't stigmatise those people who are currently living with obesity, but also encourages those people who haven't become obese yet to still feel that they can live well. Of course, many people have a very complex relationship with their weight. In 2017, my next guest, Maura Dunbar, weighed 178 kilos. She then lost 44 kilos following surgery on her stomach but then took advantage of the COVID lockdown to shed another 50 kilos. She joins me now from Glasgow in Scotland. Morag, what caused your weight to spiral out of control in the first place? Well, I went through a bit of a hard time uh, just with life, going through divorce and 
um, been a, a self-employed and life just spiralled out of control and I turned to food for comfort and that's really what caused it. Was it one type of food in particular? Yeah, so you, you would have your, your comfort food, your, your sweets, your chocolate, your pizza takeaways, um, convenience foods really more so than anything is what really caused it. And, and did being so overweight limit your lifestyle, limit what you could do or what you wanted to do? Yes, of course it did. Um, it, it limited my activities. My, my job is very sedentary, you know, so sometimes the most exercise I would get in the day would be walking around the car from a driver's seat to a passenger seat waiting for a pupil to come in. Um, I was a, an avid golfer beforehand and even walking around a golf course was a struggle. Morag, at what point did you decide you had to lose all that weight? Well, I decided it's when I finished playing nine holes of golf and I was basically on my knees and I thought, I can't continue my life like this. If I don't do something about it, I will end up in a grave. Um, it was as simple as that. Um, and I took the big decision to have surgery because at that point, that's the only way I could see out of it um, was surgery. So I, I really was at breaking points. What type of surgery? I had a gastric sleeve done, which I, I funded myself. The NHS didn't, wouldn't really look at me to help me. Um, so I went private with that. And within six weeks, I was in hospital um, and I had a gastric sleeve. And, and what, does, that, what, just... what does that gastric sleeve or band do? The, with the gastric sleeve, they, they cut away the majority of my stomach and left me with a stomach the size of a banana. Now, the, the stomach is a muscle, so if you overfill that again, once you start eating properly, um, it will grow again. So the key for your, your gastric sleeve is, is all about, it helps you with the portion control. Um, so it means if you, eat, if you eat less, you still feel full, basically. Yes, exactly. What it did for me actually was it made me feel full for the first time in my life. I never knew what to feel full felt like until I had my gastric sleeve. When you had that sleeve, what did you weigh after that? Um, I, I started at 28 stone and then I got myself down to 21 stone and one pound <laughs> um, with the gastric sleeve. And then I embarked on my fitness journey Tell us about your mental struggles through all of this, because that must have been very hard. Yes, well, I, I was on big antidepressants, big dose of antidepressants for quite a few years. Um, and mentally, it's, it's, it is just hard, like anybody that suffers from depression, it's hard. But when you've got a weight issue added into it, it, it just everything seems harder. Life is just harder. Um, but starting with the fitness side of things and working with Chris, that's what really helped me. I, I've come off my antidepressants and now exercise is my antidepressant. Um, that's what I use to kickstart my day with at 5.30 every morning. And that's what helps me get through my day. So I now have no need for any other help. Do you think your depression led to the obesity? It was one of these situations where one led to the other it was it, they fed off each other the depression fed off the the size and the size fed off the depression 
it was just a big circle, a vicious circle is all it was. Um, but, but just went hand in hand for me, basically. You, you, you are a success story in terms of you took control of your life again. But uh, what about the people who aren't as strong as you? Uh, is enough done to help them? No, there's not. There's not enough done. I'm one of the lucky ones. Um, I helped myself to start with, and then I had a, my man come in, Chris, my personal trainer, that came in and really helped me. I had the right help. But without him, I would never have got down to the weight that I've got. And I just had the right help. And somebody, he saw me, but I don't know what he saw in my eye. I think it was a bit of madness that he saw in my eye that, that, that helped me. But there's not enough help out there for the morbidly obese um, as I said to you at the very start, I funded a gastric sleeve myself because I couldn't get the help from the NHS. And had I carried on, uh, the, the professor that operated on me had said that I would have been in a grave within two years. That's where I was headed. But um, I had to do it myself. The help just isn't there. And has losing weight improved your confidence? You seem a happy and confident person now. Yeah. Yes, it has. I, I, you know, without a doubt, um, it, it, it's another thing. It just feeds off itself. You know, you, I now do things which makes me feel more confident. I, I, I started running during lockdown. We started climbing mountains during lockdown. I do things that I never dreamt I could ever do. Um, and that feeds your confidence all the time. The, the compliments I get from people, you wouldn't believe. People walk past me in the street, they maybe don't recognise me now because I've lost so much <laughs> weight. But when they do recognise me and talk to me, they're kind of like, oh, wow, you just look amazing. So well, you're told you look amazing enough, it's going to give you confidence. <laughs> just, just lastly, uh, Morag, I mean, what advice would you give to people who are obese? I mean, most people who aren't obese just look at people who are fat, who are obese, and say, step away from the cakes. It, it, but it's not as simple or as straightforward as that, is it? It's not. It's not as simple and straightforward as that. Um, it's an addiction. Food is an addiction. But unlike any other addiction, you can't cut it out of your life. You still need it. So unlike alcohol or gambling or anything else, you can cut that out of your life. Food, you still need it to be able to survive. And that's where it, it's really, really hard um, what I would say to anybody out there is, is go and find the right help. There's people out there that can help you, but you have to help yourself. Um, th th it has to come from within. But honestly, if I can do it, you can do it. Anybody <laughs> can do it because I'm nothing special. Um, well, as you... I say, just a wee spark of madness behind the eyes, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a great success story. Morag Dunbar, thanks for joining us on the agenda. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Agenda podcast. Next week, as America swears in a new president, I'll be asking what a new administration in Washington means for transatlantic relations. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify. You can also find us on CGTN Europe, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube.
the most interesting questions. Are there other living beings beyond Earth? Will man or machine be in charge? Great question. Always have more than one answer. Well, hold on, uh, let me just draw up a list. And always come from more than one person. That's where the credibility lies. The concept of having a machinery which is alive and evolving didn't wait for us. The end of inequality of incomes and wealth around the world, can you imagine how difficult that is at the moment to achieve? Every episode, Stephen Cole, Murray Beveridge, and some of the brightest minds out there shed light on the answers to some of the most intriguing questions. There are two ways of looking at this. Machines can't really discriminate between civilian and military targets. The Answers Project. Maybe we need to just look at this in a bit more detail. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The Answers Project, a new podcast from CGTN Europe.